back to Arch Cheshire. Uh, today we're going to be taking a look at uh, wellness again, this time focusing in on urban green spaces. Um, I'd like to kick it off with our, our two hosts, Felipe and Owen, as well as uh, our returning special guest, Connor. Um, and I'm just going to kick it off straight off the bat here with a question for you guys. Um, what do you guys consider a good example of an urban green space that works well for its community? Well, I guess I will uh, answer that. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of urban green spaces. We can take a look at Central Park. We can take a look at, I mean, Forest Park here in Portland itself, um, you know, any kind of community garden. Um, but I'd have to say, personally, one of my favorite green spaces I've seen, and um, this was modeled after the Highline Project, which we'll be talking about a little later on, uh, but the Beltline in Atlanta, it's this old railroad that was then converted into this walking path, trees and all their greenery around um, in Atlanta, going through different neighborhoods that just allows people to go out and about to walk. And, you know, uh, green spaces in general are pretty great for people's mental health and mental well-being uh, we have a lot of articles there's one um, that is titled the importance of green space for mental health uh, with the authors joe barton and mike rogerson um, published in 2014 or sorry 2017 um, but they talk about you know how green spaces are are very important for health you know it allows people to go out and exercise um it also green spaces increase the amount of oxygen production and it's been shown that plant life has the ability to you know reduce depression and other mental illnesses um just also to define green space here it is an umbrella term uh, used to describe either maintained or unmaintained environmental areas which can include nature reserves, wilderness environments, and urban parks. Um, you know, within urban contexts, green spaces are purposefully designed for their recreational or aesthetic merits. And that is, uh, I'm pulling that straight from the article here. Uh, but no, the reason why I like the Beltline so much is just, it's a great way to link communities. You know, you can walk to a completely different part of Atlanta along the belt line it's just a wonderful beautiful walk full of you know trees and nature and like other people around yeah both both the high line and the green line they, they kill so many birds with stone you know uh we in america have this very rich history of trains of, of rail lines and that was what connected america in the first place and it created so many jobs and really shaped the way this country formed and the way that both these projects was able to take this outdated, archaic, almost archaeological feature of these cities, this, these train tracks that ran through the city and obviously were not being used anymore, and turned them into a piece of public renovation of something that not just can be reused for something utilitarian but used for something that talks about the history of these cities that talks about you know where we came from and i think it's a really good model for how we can 
forward and do progressive things without necessarily leaving our past behind either. Um, at least with the Highline, it was just sitting there being overgrown. And for years and years and years, it was the subject of artists and vandals and urban explorers, you know, cutting fences and jumping over barbed wire to get into these spaces where nature was starting to reclaim these things. And instead of tearing them down, grassroots organizations in both cases organized and was able to turn them into public spaces. So not only are these rehabilitation projects that show history, but they're also great examples of grassroots urban planning. Uh, so not only is it, are they both public projects that talk about history, but they're projects that communities are heavily invested in and wanted and great success stories, both of them. I uh, definitely agree with you that they're great um, examples of, of places that really highlight the history of these, these cities. Um, I've been doing a lot of research recently, um, specifically on the infrastructure of Berlin. Um, and uh, I've been looking at the Stadtrorpost, which is the pardon my pronunciation if that's awful i don't speak german but um it's essentially the uh um sounded good to me yeah, um it's uh the pneumatic tube mailing system that was present in berlin from 1860 to 1975 um and it, it's one of those things where i i've been looking at it and sort of wondering what happened to it like it, it it stopped being used in 1975 or 1976 maybe um because of the separation of the city and then also the um sort of uprising of telephones um cell phones in particular and sure it makes sense that it shut down but it's also like there's so much history and uh there's so much infrastructure built behind it that it seems sort of wrong to just get rid of it altogether like that. So I think something like the Highline Project or the Beltline Project is a really good example of a way that you can take those old elements of infrastructure in a city and make them something new and beautiful that can still be used just for a different purpose potentially. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you guys. And yeah, <laughs> that was a good, uh, a good, um, uh, pronunciations and I couldn't have done better myself on that one. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, to to kind of build on top of that, I think these both spaces or green spaces in general really help us break that that fourth wall, that that kind of fourth dimension where we're extending beyond just the physical spaces um, of our everyday lives or the urban environment, um, and they not only help us escape our everyday life. Um, but they connect us with nature. And I think that's what you mentioned earlier, Connor, was that when things are abandoned, nature naturally wants to take back over what it what it what it could do. I mean, it's it's so I think these these projects, the Beltline and the Highline projects, are able to allow nature to take back its its environment in a controlled way where people could still enjoy those spaces and continue to build on those spaces. Yeah, I 
I also want to just kind of point out as well here um, in regards, you know, like greenery within an urban environment and having more nature. Um, a while back, oh goodness, it was like fall term. So what, like, you know, December 2019, um, I interviewed a professor at PSU for a podcast I was doing, Situational Significance at the time. And we talked about um, urban heat islands and, you know, that is caused by heat being absorbed by concrete and then slowly, slowly getting released, you know, uh, with plant life and, you know, grass and nature, it gets released a lot quicker. So by having that extra greenery, you know, you're reducing that, um, those heat islands and that heat impact on humans, which is also another link to, you know, this wellness aspect here, right? Uh, it it goes beyond mental health and into you know actual physical health which is wellness encompasses many things and like physical health is part of that so by reducing that overall heat strain on our bodies it, it's just making it better overall and also it's just good to look at certainly yeah i mean we we can look at these projects and be like oh obviously a park is a nice thing to have it's a nice amenity uh, because you get a space to go to leisure outside in the city. But what no one, or not what no one, but what many people don't think about of the um, subliminal effects that these spaces have, a lot of people probably don't notice the two degree temperature difference, but two degrees is, is significant. I mean, anyone who's been in a house where the thermostat's to 68, and then you set it to 66, you notice it, you're cold all of a sudden. And so, yeah, these public park spaces in the middle of a heat island, maybe not just are cooler, they definitely are, and they definitely affect you. And of course, just being exposed to the nature itself, you know, not everyone realizes how much better they feel after spending two hours in a park versus spending two hours inside. And it, 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 the list goes on and on. It, it adds to your pride in your city. Like you mentioned earlier, the variation and the joy that it brings you, the idea of whimsy, you know, the idea of these train tracks reclaimed by nature maybe doesn't have an obvious utilitarian sense, but it brings a sense of joy and novelty. That while people don't claim as one of their number one values, I think it kind of subconsciously brings much more joy to the city that it's hosted in. I think it's that authenticity too. I mean, people want to, people want to enjoy the real thing, the real deal that uh, train tracks were used. This was for a purpose uh, at a point in time. Um, and I think that adds to the value that adds to the experience of being in that space Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. I mean, you, you see, Parks are not unique, you know, there, there's parks in every city in America. And while I'll never poo-poo a park, some parks are just kind of generic lawns that are placed strategically kind of because they have to be there. And other parks like the High Line, like the, the, the Beltway, the Green Line, they come about more naturally and that authenticity, while not everyone has the find 
you know, taste of realizing it directly, people still notice, you know, people still take, take notice that Highline is a much more authentic, real, cool park than say, you know, one that's just turf or a parking lot. Certainly. I agree. I think there's a, another element to them also that really helps their impact, which is um, unlike those sort of standard lawn parks, they're being drawn sort of through the city. You know, it's not like, oh, for every, you know, <clears throat> 10 square blocks or something like that, we'll have a park or something like that, that all those people in that radius can go to that one central location. It's just, it's, bringing that green through the city it's not concentrating it in specific areas so that you can have full industry around it you know um and i think that that also really works well going back to what you said earlier to improve your attitude and improve the way that you move through the city if you're walking through say new york city right and you walk past Central Park and that's great. And you know, you're in this green space and then you start walking through these city blocks and then it's just concrete straight for however long until you hit the next spot of green. Adding something like the Highline Project makes it so that you could be walking through that concrete jungle and be in green space still. It can still be part of that space. They don't have to be so separated. Would you consider that a manicured space, Zane? Uh, I know we talked uh, during the production and it was kind of back and forth of, of the differences between a manicured green space, like a, a garden or a picturesque or something like that, uh, versus kind of a, an open and free, free-willed uh, area that could kind of grow where it, where it can. Well, I would say for for these in particular the highline and the belt line they are fairly manicured from what i know at least because they do have to be you know fully properly maintained and everything like that they have specific areas for greenery and stuff like that but um then you look at places like forest park which is very much you know a forest the basically the only maintenance that they do is controlling invasive species which is important for any you know forest and then maintaining the paths but other than that the plants can do what they want you know um so i i think having it more um i don't want to say restrictive but that's sort of the right word um, it's like guided like, huh yeah guided that's a better word yeah more guided like they do for places like the highline um definitely is I would say more manicured than um, than something like Forest Park or some of those other green parks. I will say um, I mentioned earlier how the Highline, before they turned it into a park, did start to become overgrown and people would kind of sneak up there and hang out. Uh, when the landscapers were designing, sorry, did I say Forest Park? I meant the Highline. Not sure which one I said, but I meant them. Uh, when when they started landscaping the Highline, they very extensively documented what was growing there when it was just left to nature to reclaim it, 
and they used the same plant species to replant it. And they even tried to keep some of the larger trees that had been growing there and reuse them. So yes, because it is a it's it's a manicured space. There's no there's no way to get around that. It's if if it was just left to grow freely, a lot of those trees would get too big and they wouldn't have the soil necessarily to support them, so they would collapse. So just because it's where it is, they have to do some sort of maintenance to it. They were able to take inspiration from how nature was reclaiming it and use that. So I definitely think there's gradients, right? They could have just taken as kind of the forest park approach and just let it grow rampant, which personally, I think that would have been kind of cool to see what that would have looked like. But they didn't go to the full opposite where they did, you know, the gardens of Versailles where everything's geometric and perfectly placed. Uh, they kind of found a middle ground. And I think that middle ground is something that we should be doing more of these days for sure. Yeah, I, I actually have a bit of a question for you guys. What is the architect's role in designing, you know, these landscapes and these projects um, and, you know, designing around green spaces? Because, I mean, one would think it's, you know, a landscaper, but I, I feel that the architects, you know, have are, are pretty important to this kind of thing. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, go for, go for it, Connor. It depends on the project. It depends on the project. Um, I've kind of always had the idea in my head that when I eventually start my own firm, I would want to hire on landscape architects onto staff to be part of the initial design team. Um, I think that architecture and landscape should really go hand in hand. I think it's kind of silly that they're so split because right now, uh, to back it up a little bit, most buildings that are built, you've got an architect and then the architect hires a landscape architect. And the landscape architect designs on their own, but they still work for the architects. Kind of like the same relationship that you have with the client and an architect, only the architect's the client and the landscape architect is who they hire. So it... I guess it varies is what I'm trying to say. Some projects, the architect is very, very involved in the landscape design, but more often than not, they kind of work separately from each other, which is unfortunate, but it's really the most uh, um, efficient way to move forward, usually. Although I would say with projects like the Beltline, it's that was primarily a landscape architect. I, I don't even know if they would have hired an architect for that because landscape architects can design benches, they can design small structures, they can they can do a lot of different things. Um, so I I would say that in the context of the projects that we're talking about right now, those were probably more landscape architect uh, driven projects. I will say also that there are some good examples of. Um places where architects very much did um well did a lot of the landscaping but um yes also definitely took into account a lot of landscape there's john yon who i think i've talked about before on this podcast but he did um he did the shire and the gorge he did the watsik house in southwest hills um both of those places that i would highly recommend visiting 
Um, but if you look at the play, like the Watsik house, for example, it's a house up in the Southwest Hills. Right. And so much of it is informed by the landscape that it's on um, both architecturally and in a landscape basis. It's everything is manipulated in a way so that it isolates the house on the street so that, you know, people can't see the house even from the street um but you can still see out and get the view of mount hood right it's it's a great example of a time when someone really paid attention to what their landscape was um and i think there are a lot of projects now um especially that don't really take that into consideration like there there are plenty of times that i see some buildings that like you know some some high rise that goes up that has literally no green space it has maybe some planters out front or something like that you know um and in that case it's kind of like like you're just sort of sucking some of the life out of it you know i feel like there's so much opportunity that could be there that isn't for sure i i mean i see it all the time in my in my daily practices especially with buildings downtown uh, it's kind of always assumed that you're going to have a tree well maybe 15 20 feet spaced apart from each other and certainly landscaping takes a very very back seat to planning because when you're in the city Fortunately, most of the time, it just kind of comes down to space and you want to build out as much building as you can and you have a minimum requirement for street trees. So you just kind of plop these trees in their own little rectangle on the sidewalk. And they're usually small trees and a lot of the time, the developer doesn't have money to take care of them, so they die. So there's definitely a lot of room for improvement in the general development of landscaping for sure. But then on the flip side of it, I mean, we have a building downtown that is one of the most sustainable in the world, and it's got vines growing up the entire face of it and lush landscaping at the bottom of it. So it's certainly possible in an, in an urban context, but you're right, it totally does get left on the back burner most of the time, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's a bit disappointing, you know, because, I mean, as we're talking about green spaces and how it's good for you know mental health and this intersection between green spaces and architecture by having it take the back seat we're losing out on a lot um in this another study uh done by nasa actually um you know there's looking at denmark the relative risk of developing a psychiatric disorder drastically goes down the more green spaces that are present um whether it be rural provincial town provincial city capital suburb or capital center you know having these green spaces are just so significant to just your life and and just like you know your well-being and uh it's it makes me lucky to live in you know portland because we do have a lot of green spaces and especially the area i live in it's very lush and there's a lot around and you know beyond just having it to look at and like being nice to look at you know it actually helps to i feel dampen some of the noise um and just you know makes it a more serene and peaceful area to be in 
Yeah, it 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 dampens noise. It slows the amount of water runoff into our sewage systems. Birds, which then provides prey. Uh, sorry, habitat for bugs, which then provides prey for birds. It creates, you know, it just brings nature back in. I am baffled by how little trees are valued in our urban landscape these days, but I am so very fortunate, like you said, that we live in a city that, you know, I'm looking out my window and I see many, many trees over towering buildings. And I wish that more cities in America were like that for sure, because it's gorgeous. It's amazing. Who hates trees? I think there's definitely an element of that also, which um, we'll be talking about after the break here, which is uh, really bringing the nature to, you know, right outside your front door, bringing it, bringing it closer to you, not just having those <clears throat> large sort of concentrated areas to go to, bring it, bring it back, back outside, back around the city. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to move to the break really quick, but right once we get back, we'll start talking about that. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for listening. We are now on break. Uh, as you know, my name is Owen, and I am the multimedia editor for The Vanguard. Um, just giving you a quick heads up that we have other shows on our podcast network. Situational Significance is back, uh, now co-hosted by uh, Hannah Anderson, our news editor, as well as Nick Gatlin. Uh, they're fantastic. Our first episode about uh, the Oregon elections that are happening was really good, and we're going into uh, communicating during the COVID area over the next few episodes. So be sure to check that out. In addition, your own mind, uh, we've taken a brief hiatus on that. That's going to be back, though, very soon, talking about motivation, which I'm actually very excited about. Um, I'm also a co-host on that. In addition, make sure to check out our newspaper, which is now online, which we release every week on Tuesdays. Also, one last thing, I will be hosting a live stream news session once per week. You'll be able to view that on YouTube. Uh, check out our social media pages, PSU Vanguard on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as our website, psuvanguard.com. We will be posting blog posts for Architecture there. Make sure to check it out. It's all very good content. Hope you're enjoying the episode and we'll jump back in. All right, and welcome back. Um, so now we're going to be taking sort of a look at uh, more intimate spaces, spaces closer to home. Um, so I want to ask you guys, have you guys ever used like a, uh, a communal garden, one of those uh, ones that you'll have in a neighborhood that you know everybody can go and plant in and stuff like that. Can't say I have. Well, yeah. I haven't either. <laughs> yeah, I. But um, from what I can tell, even just having one in the area, um, I should say, at my mom's house, next to her house, there's a community garden. Um, and just having that there, even though we don't use it, it still is, for whatever reason, a very nice thing to have there. Like, it, 
we we can't even see it from the house, you know. But just knowing that it's it's right over there, for whatever reason, it makes the space and the community feel a lot warmer. It makes it feel a lot more personal and more more connected to each other. Sure, it represents. It's I think it's what it represents, which feels very like a very theoretical thing to say and i and i think a lot of people not in design community would kind of laugh at that like oh the idea of it what's an idea worth but it sort of fosters thinking that sort of like what we were talking about earlier right some parks are integrated community and some parks are in their own little parcel separate from everything else and if you zoom out you have housing and urban development and then you have farmland way out in the periphery and that sort of thinking has in part led to sprawl right like you have to ship all this food in and out of the city and gardening and being part of the earth is not something that you do in a city and so i think the idea of these urban gardens is not necessarily that has to be true like we we can mix the two together we can integrate farmland and connecting to the earth and produce our own crops in the middle of a very dense urban setting and, and i think that that idea that no we're not just a concrete jungle is what makes it so comforting even if you can't see it from your house yeah i, I totally agree with you guys i mean i think it's the that sense of ownership right i mean when you provide a piece of land to a community or to a family, um, there's an in there's an inherent amount of ownership, a responsibility that they have to look after that particular space and treat it like their own. And from the community standpoint, I think it's awesome. I, you mentioned earlier about uh, urban explorers, uh, and you started talking about how urban explorers are normally associated with vandalisms or overrun with people. Um, I think these community gardens are a form of urban explorers they bring out everyone in the community to lend a hand in development or to just explore and interact with what's around them at least i think in that sense it also helps to bring communities together whether it is a community garden or even just a park honestly it, it's a way that you interact with the people that surround you which is really sort of lacking in modern times. I feel like, like I know like one of my neighbors, you know, but if we were all working on the same land every once in a while, I'd start, you know, meeting the people that surround me and I, I'd know who lives next door, you know, and I, I, I think that would really be a large benefit to pretty much all communities, to be honest. Like, I don't think there's any time really that I can think of that knowing your neighbor is a bad thing. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd completely agree. Um, we as humans, you know, we're, we're social creatures. So we want to be able to, you know, go out and talk to people and uh, having those gardens are a great way of doing it. There's um, multiple housing complexes around uh, Portland. And one of them that I know of called the Kalish eco village. Um, it's like this economical, like, you know, it seems a little bit like hippie place, but it's somewhere where you can go and 
you know, the residents have their own community garden there. So that way you can meet other people. You have fresh vegetables. You're able to garden. And, you know, gardening is actually, you know, good for you. It provides some exercise. It surrounds you by nature. And also then you're getting fresh food once you get to garden. Um, and what you said to kind of, you know, having that green space to go and meet your community, you know, where I live, it's very walkable. And you want to walk around because there is that greenery. And in doing so, you know, you start to meet your neighbors, start to meet other people within the neighborhood and start to kind of build that, I guess, camaraderie uh, with the people around you, which I think is very valuable to have. And, you know, it's just another way of boosting your well-being. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you guys. And, and, I'm, and I'm sorry in advance that that that. Uh, I'd have to bring up my own experience with uh, I'm growing a little bonsai tree on my windowsill and it's that that the beautifulness or the the beauty that comes out of growing something and kind of how it ends when it's it's fully grown or it's fully in a state that you recognize it and it's and it's a it's a a focus for all your time and effort that went into it every day I kind of take a second and it's almost self-care for me where I either treat that bonsai and kind of maintenance it or to Zane's point, we, I could go to a community garden and kind of relax a little bit more and, and feel uh, the environment and, and kind of let environment uh, impact me um, to, to kind of kick me out of my normal day. I totally um, relate to what you're saying. It, it's very much that sort of idea of, um, I guess, uh, feeling the result of, of what you've done, you know, like it, you've gone to this garden or you've, you've worked on this plant, you made sure it was well-maintained and everything like that. And you keep doing that, even though you don't have to, there's no reason that you have to do that. It doesn't help you in any way, but once you, you see this, this, you know, whatever, squash that you're growing and it's oh it's this little blossom and now it's this full thing and i can pick that and i can eat that and that is the result of me coming to this place and doing this because i wanted to because i chose to do this i think that is really beneficial i remember one time because i have i have a, a lot of plants um but there was this one plant a lalacea that i was sort of nurturing back to health and after a long time um i noticed that it had sprouted a flower on it and it was this like moment of like pure joy like it, it was like it was my child or something like that you know um so i i really think that uh, so many people underappreciate the benefits of having things like plants or even a green space that that you take care of yeah and you know not to continuously bring up scientific information here but uh no people do underappreciate it uh and looking forward you know as healthcare costs rise we need to start looking for ways to you know make ourselves healthier and have better well-being outside of you know the like the traditional oh let's medicate it um in a article by uh soga gatson and yamamura titled gardening is beneficial for health a meta-analysis you know, they, they looked over 22 different case studies on how gardening, uh, what, the what the effects of 
at bar and they found you know there are positive effects of gardening on health um and the results presented within this meta-analysis uh, suggests that gardening can improve physical uh, psychological and social health which can from a long-term perspective alleviate and prevent various health issues uh, that is facing us in today's society um so by having these community gardens by having these green spaces where people can go out and walk and just enjoy nature, it's going to save the policymakers and you know the government money because it's reducing healthcare costs, which is also then going to be passed down to us. And all in all, it's just going to make things a little bit cheaper and better for us as humans uh, in our daily lives, and it's just going to make everything better. And you know, I want to kind of bring up something that we we talked about briefly uh, right before the break. You know, when we weren't recording. Uh, in London, there's something called the Barbican, and in the middle, it's like this little green paradise area, and, you know, it's not a garden per se, but it's still this little community area of all these apartments where they can, like, go out and grow and tend, and it's just, it's frankly, I think, beautiful, and it, it's pretty new, um, but I just wanted to bring that up very quickly, and we'll, we'll have links to view it, and I'd highly recommend checking it out, because uh, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, that's, it's an amazing example because it's a Soviet-era public housing block, right? Uh, something a lot of people associate with the bleakest forms of urbanism. And yet, this highly industrial, concrete, brutalist structure is overgrown with plants and filled with this ponds in the middle of it. I think it's the most extreme example I could think of. Well, I guess the High Line, too, where we have industry and city and concrete and steel, and it proves that those things do not have to be dependent on nature and wellness. I think it was a good example of them having to check those boxes, too. I'm sure that there was a lot of regulatory requirements to do that type of, of infrastructure in in the urban space it's in. So I'm sure that it's an accomplishment to to not only check all of those boxes, but they also, um, it, it also kind of hit at their core. And, and really all of our cores, we're all, whether lovers of architecture or, or artists or whatever, we all really like to think and we all like to contemplate and we all like to think what, what's beyond, what's next in each one of us. And so I think to rearrange that space in a way that enhances the daily lives of, of their occupants or the people that live there, is really awesome yeah and also just from a personal standpoint i find that mix between industrial and nature just frankly beautiful you know it's it's two things that shouldn't go together but when they are put together it's just satisfying it looks good and you know you're surrounded by nature but have this very like heavy design to it as well and it's just this this perfect mixture of the two yeah, there's. Sorry, go for it. I didn't mean to cut anyone off. My audio cut out, and it sounded like there was a silence. If there wasn't, I apologize. There was. Um, no, you go for it. Okay, there. Uh, a project that I wanted to bring to everyone's attention. There's an architect named Ricardo Bofill, Boffel, uh, from the 1970s, and he has a project. Uh, where he took an abandoned cement factory outside of Barcelona and turned it into a home. 
and you have these images of this of this huge mechanical equipment, giant pieces of machinery that are like three or four stories tall inside this vacant concrete space. But he's hung these really fine, delicate white curtains from them and just filled the outside of it with what looks like an overgrown garden, although I'm sure it was carefully planned. And to me, it's just the epitome of of us becoming technologically advanced enough that we don't have to have a hard border between nature and industry that we that we are enough and smart enough that we can allow nature to infiltrate our old industrial spaces without it compromising our technological advancements. It's it's a beautiful project that I think encompasses a lot of things that we're talking about. I, I think there's an idea in there also that sort of relates to the epistemology of architecture versus nature, how we define those things as separate where you know what makes us think that why why do these things have to be separate why can they not be one and the same you know it, it's it's an interesting thing to think about and wonder sort of why why we want them so separate like why why do we think that oh like the outside is so dirty and we can't have that I, you know we have to have these white walls and like you know make it like a sanitarium or a museum um but i I feel like that there's really something in us relating to that that sort of has to break free in a way, you know, like it's hard to get past that in certain times and, and really open yourself up to, to including those different things in your life. But I think it, it, it can be a really valuable thing. Yeah. I think it's uh and maybe Owen can talk more to this. I can logical side of things, but I think it boils down to our our instincts, right? I mean, shelter is one of the key things that we as humans need for safety. I think that that idea of shelter extends to shutting out nature, right? I mean, we, bugs, for example. How many people are scared of bugs? Tons of people, they see a spider, they're terrified. So when they see these projects where nature is being let back into their homes, thinking, oh gosh, bugs are going to be everywhere. We're going to have bugs. We're going we're to have mosquitoes. What about, you know, it, it just feels like we're exposing ourselves to all these external forces that we that we keep out with the idea of shelter. And, and that's what I mean by the fact that we've advanced to the point now where we can provide shelter and protection for ourselves, but also allow nature back in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, to get back to your question about like why, why we fight against it so much, I think it really comes down to, to instinct and fear and evolution. But I think that we can move past that. Yeah, I think you hit it. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, I think you hit it on the head there, Connor. Um, I think it does, you know, kind of relate to the the instinct of uh, like the need for shelter, but we are at that point where we can combine the two. 
also wanted to point out very quickly, The Factory by Richard Boffill was uh, present in Westworld Season 3, which I just noticed. I have not seen Season 3 yet, so no spoilers, please. But I'm thrilled to hear that it is in media. That's awesome. I think also, um, sorry to bring it off Westworld, but um, um, I think there is something that you touched on, Connor. Um, uh, where we were talking about earlier. Um, oh man, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, that sucks. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you got me thinking about Westworld, man. Um, <laughs> we were talking about we were talking about keeping nature out and evolution and instinct. Right. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I think there's something really interesting that you pointed out um, that we sort of talked on earlier, which was that distinction between um, a manicured uh, green space versus one that isn't. And I think that's one thing that we have developed, like you were saying, is the ability to manicure those green spaces really well. So I think if we can sort of implement uh those green spaces into our architecture even if they are manicured that's still a way to get us you know closer connected to our world and improve our state of well-being in terms of yeah tracking the conversation i i agree i agree that that shelter in when i think of shelter i think of well-being when when a person is covered and a person is in shelter they feel completely different than when they're outside. They feel protected. They feel a different, uh, they have a different mindset as if they were just completely exposed to nature. And I think that welfare is, is something really to, to highlight on because the, your ability to have peace of mind almost that you're safe, you're protected, you're, you're able to look out onto the landscape kind of undetected um, and kind of enjoy it and let it soak in. But I think wellness and welfare are really tied to that shelter point. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that about wraps it up for this episode, unfortunately. But um, I think we definitely covered some really great things talking about how we really need to you know, change change the way we think about the differentiation between architecture and green spaces and bringing more of those into our societies. But um, with that, I'd like to thank you guys, um, Felipe, Owen, Connor. Thank you guys for thank you guys for participating. It's been great. Thank, thank you. you. Conversation. All right. Thank you for listening. Um, we'll be back very soon with another episode. Bye bye.